The following is a sermon from Redemption Bible Chapel in London, Ontario. For more information about our church, please visit redemptionlondon.ca. I invite you to continue to worship with me by turning to the book of Philippians chapter 3. Philippians chapter 3. I'm going to assume uh, most of us are familiar with the name Charles Haddon Spurgeon. I won't ask for a show of hands, but if you're not familiar with that name, uh, Spurgeon was a famous Baptist preacher in the 1800s. He's often described as the prince of preachers. And he ministered in London, England uh, during the 19th century. And uh, the Lord did indeed accomplish a mighty work through uh, the preaching ministry of Charles Haddon Spurgeon. Uh, there is a story, and I have tried to track the, uh, trace down the origins of this story, and uh, I haven't had the best luck doing so, but there is a story concerning Spurgeon, embellished or not, I don't know, but uh, allegedly he was preaching at a conference uh, outside of London, away from home in England, and he was the guest preacher along with another man, and so these two men over the course of a Friday night, Saturday, Sunday, preached a series of sermons, and in one particular sermon, the other preacher affirmed sinless perfection. And so what I mean by that is this, uh, the idea that as Christians, this side of heaven, we can arrive at a state of perfection, sinless perfection. It has its roots in the Wesleyan tradition and is still prevalent in some of the Wesleyan Methodist churches today, but this idea that we can actually receive a second blessing and attain sinless perfection, and this is what this preacher proclaimed from the pulpit, and Spurgeon sat there and bit his tongue and remained silent. As God's providence would have it, they were staying at the same home, and so the next morning at breakfast, Spurgeon snuck up behind this preacher with a jug of milk and poured it over his head. His reaction marked the end of his own sinless perfection. Uh, I am here to tell you, there is no such thing as sinless perfection this side of heaven, brothers and sisters. Uh, there is growth. There is maturity. But there is no sinless perfection. Christ has taken hold of us by the Holy Spirit. We have taken hold of him through faith. We are one with him and one with him in his death, his burial, and his resurrection. Therefore, the penalty of our sin is paid in full. There is now a new power, a new principle, new desires at work, active within us. And we are now called to live the Christian life, which is from start to finish an absolute battle. It is a struggle. There is no second blessing. There is no complete breaking. There is no total filling. There is no silver bullet where something's going to happen in life to make things easier, to begin this smooth sailing to heaven, to glory. No. From the moment Christ saves us, we embark on a battle, a struggle. And all of life is to be viewed through this lens. It is precisely what the Apostle Paul affirms in our text for today. 
It's right there, Philippians chapter 3. Follow along as I begin reading in the 12th verse. Not that I have already obtained this, or am already perfect, but I press on to make it my own because Christ Jesus has made me his own. Brothers, I do not consider that I have made it my own, but one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and straining forward to what lies ahead, I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Let those of us who are mature think this way, and if any, in anything you think otherwise, God will reveal that also to you. Only let us hold true to what we have attained. Back with me, verse 12. Let's camp out here just for a few moments because it's pivotal then. It serves as a bridge between what Pastor Norm walked us through last week and the verses before us now, the 12th verse, not that I have already obtained this or am already perfect. It begs an obvious question. Obtained what? Well, we need to go into the preceding verses. Go back as far as verse 10. And here Paul is saying that I may know him. This is his great desire that he might know Christ experientially and the power of his resurrection, and may share his sufferings becoming like him in his death. In other words, I want to mortify my sin. I want to die to self. This is my great desire. This is my great longing. This is my great ambition. I want to become like Christ, conform to him in his death, dying to self, that by any means possible, I may attain the resurrection from the dead. That's when it's going to happen. That's when it will finally and definitively happen. And right now in this life, I make it my great goal, my great ambition to live as Christ lived, to be conformed to Christ, and to put to death sin and self-love in my own life. And so in verse 12, that's what he has in view. Not that I have already obtained this or am already perfect. Yes, I'm in Christ. Yes, I'm a new creation in Christ Jesus. Yes, it is true there is now a new principle resident within me by virtue of the indwelling presence of the Spirit of God. Yes, there are new inclinations. There are new desires. And yes, there is this great desire eclipsing all others that I would be like the Lord Jesus. But I haven't obtained it. I'm not going to obtain it. This side of what? This side of glory. This side of heaven. I have not already obtained this. I'm not already perfect. What does he go on to say in the rest of the verse? But, so what do I do? I press on. I apply myself. I persevere. Press on to make it my own because Christ Jesus has made me my, his own. Brothers, I do not consider that I have made it my own. But one thing I do Forgetting what lies behind and straining forward to what lies ahead, I press on. And so the Apostle Paul is a realist. He's a very realistic view of the Christian life. Sadly, far too many of us are idealistic. 
We're looking for things that God has never promised. We forget that in actual fact, the Christian life is not about pursuing something that we don't already have. The Christian life is about simply living out all that God has given us in Christ Jesus. That's the great difference. The Christian life is about understanding who we are in Christ. The Christian life is understanding, comprehending, and taking it to heart what it means to be one with Christ in his death, burial, resurrection, and now seeking to live accordingly, living in a fashion that is consistent with our identity in Christ, striving, straining forward, anticipating, longing for, waiting for that day of glorification, that great coming resurrection. This is Paul's reality. This is the world in which he lives. Again, the 12th verse, not that I have already obtained this or am already perfect, but I press on to make it my own. He says something very similar. In 1 Corinthians chapter 9, verse 24, he declares every athlete exercises self-control in all things. Every athlete exercises self-control in all things exercises self-control. It's a fascinating word in the original. Listen for an English word in here, okay? Agonizomai. Did you hear an English word in there? Agonizomai. Agony. An athlete exercises self-control. An athlete agonizes. An athlete disciplines himself, disciplines herself. Why? Because there is an end in view, view. There is a goal in front of them. This little city we lived in back there in Texas, the neighboring city, there was a young woman uh, competed in the last Summer Olympics, 2016, a swimmer, won several medals. And she was interviewed on one occasion on local television. It was fascinating listening to her life story. And uh, the life she had lived, I mean, she had the physique, she had the body, the right build to be a swimmer and a successful swimmer. She obviously had unbelievable hand-eye coordination, which most of us do not have. But what set her apart from the masses was the life she had lived ever since she was about nine years of age. Hours and hours every day six days a week for about 15 years in the pool, exercising a strict regiment in terms of her daily life, what she would eat, what she would not eat, how many hours of sleep she got every night, and this regimented life of agony, exercising self-discipline. Why? Because she had an end in view. And the goal was what? The prize of winning gold at the Olympics. Well, Paul says in 1 Corinthians 9, 24, every athlete exercises self-control in all things. They do it to receive a perishable wreath. In his day, the winners at the Olympic Games received a wreath, a crown. Do you know what it was made of? Celery. No joke. It was indeed perishable, celery. But Paul goes on and says in that verse, we, we chase after, what? An imperishable crown. 
And for this reason, Paul presses on. He has a goal before him. He has an ob objective clearly in view. And for this reason, he disciplines himself. He agonizes. He perseveres, or in the language of our text, presses on. Now, it leads to an obvious question and a good question. How does he do that? That doesn't sound very easy. Oh, it's not easy. Now, that doesn't sound like something that's going to happen if I'm just sitting around on the couch. No, it's not something just going to happen sitting around on the couch. Uh, this, this, this sounds like it's going to require an awful lot of effort on my part and energy. And again, that word self-discipline. Well, well, how does Paul do this? What counsel does Paul give us to press on? He gives us in this text three words of counsel. That's what I'm going to share with you today. Paul's three words of counsel to encourage us to press on in this great fight, struggle, battle in which we are engaged. Now, just before I do that, let me make the point, to make sure I've drawn everyone in this morning, let me make the point that these three words of counsel by way of application actually extend beyond the immediate context. Yes, Paul has primarily in view that great struggle, that great battle with sin, and his exhortation is press on. But as we consider these three words of counsel, I just want to make the point that they are applicable well beyond that context. And so for all I know, as I look out at you this morning, uh, there may very well be someone here suffering recent loss, right? Grieving the loss of a loved one. And the, uh, just the thought of life without that loved one seems almost unbearable. Uh, the exhortation is actually the same for you it's press on, brother. Press on, sister. And these three words of counsel are for you. Uh, there may be someone here this morning, um, I don't know, this past week or a couple of weeks ago, you got the dreaded phone call, test results. And um, a year from now, your health situation is going to be radically different. And it is daunting. It is downright frightening. Uh, the message for you this morning is press on. And there are three words of counsel to aid you to do that. There might be someone, uh, marriage has not turned out as you envisioned. He's a little more difficult than you ever thought he would be, or she's less perfect than you thought she would be. And it's turned out to be quite the struggle and downright difficult at times. Uh, the message from God's word to you this day is press on. And these three words of counsel are for you. Primarily, it is for those of us as Christians who are struggling with sin. And I think it's fair to say, probably very safe to say, that that includes just about everyone in this room. Our struggle with sin is difficult. Our struggle with sin at times is, again, to use that word, downright daunting. And someone, for all I know, right now, sitting there, might very well be thinking to himself, thinking to herself, yeah, I'm hearing you. I have been struggling with that sin for the better part of the past year, couple of years. 
three years, dare I say longer. And it's tough, you know? There are times I think I'm on top of it, and then it rears its ugly head and it drags me back down to the depths. And perhaps you're thinking to yourself, what's the point? It's been a futile battle now for a year, two years, three years, six years, seven years. And I feel I'm not getting anywhere. I feel like it is a Sisyphean struggle. Sisyphus, do you remember that character from your Greek mythology? Sisyphus, Zeus punished him in the underworld. What does Sisyphus have to do? He had to roll that big boulder up the mountain. And as soon as he got to the top, what happened? It rolled back down. And he had to chase after it and then roll it back up. And as soon as it got to the top, what happened? It rolled back down. This was his eternal punishment, a Sisyphean struggle. What's the point? It's absolutely pointless. Some of you young people, guys, gals, that may, that may be your predicament right now. Whatever it is you think has a handle on your life, a hold on you, struggles that no one else even knows about, and uh, you're here, you're giving church one more chance, you're giving God one more opportunity, and you might very well be thinking to yourself, there is no point. This just goes on and on and on. I know this is wrong. I know this has an undue influence in my life. And, and, and I'm beat up over it. And I feel terrible about it. But on and on it goes. What's the point? And God's message to you by means of his word is simply this. Press on. And here are three words of counsel. Okay, are you ready for them then? And so this is my word to you right here as a group. If you were to come to speak to me in private, dealing with any of these problems I've pinpointed, and we were sitting alone, these would be my three words of counsel to you. And so here they are. Listen closely. Give your utmost attention to them. And I pray by the power of the Spirit of God that there may be, they may bear great fruit in each of our lives this day. Here we go. Word of counsel number one. Remember that Christ has made you his own. All right? Remember that Christ has made you his own. I'm not making that up. Return with me to verse 12. Not that I have already obtained this or am already perfect, but I press on to make it my own. Why? Because Christ Jesus has made me his own. He has made me his own. It's true, the Father has made me his own by virtue of election, chose me in Christ before the foundation of the world. It's true that Christ has made me his own by virtue of the cross. He laid down his life for the sheep. He shed his own blood to make atonement for my sin. But I think what is primarily in view here is the fact that the triune God makes us his own. When the Lord Jesus Christ takes hold of us by the Holy Spirit, literally making us one with him, he has called us. This isn't the mere general call. Theologians, they differentiate when it comes to studying Scripture and understanding this call. They differentiate between a general call and a special call. And the general call is basically what I'm doing right now as a preacher. I'm speaking. I'm unpacking. God's word, and I'm declaring whosoever will may come, right? An invitation open to all to receive, to respond, to react, to change, to alter, to obey. That is a general call. But there's a special call, which is, yes, when a preacher proclaims the word of God, but the spirit of God does something internally, right? 
I mean, we're studying Paul's letter to the Philippians. You go right back to the beginning of the church. In Philippi, there's no synagogue. And so what does Paul do? He learns that there are some Jewish women who worship beside the river. And he goes down and he preaches and he proclaims. And there's a woman there by the name of Lydia. And we read in Acts chapter 16 that the Lord opened Lydia's heart to pay attention to what was said by Paul. What was said by Paul, there's the general call. But it was the Lord who opened her heart to receive what was said by Paul. That is the special call. It is an effectual call. I have a dog at home, Macy. She's a cute thing. I was going to say little thing. She's actually a big thing, half lab, half Australian shepherd. And I let her out in the backyard, and she, she loves running around in the backyard. And sometimes it's difficult to get her back into the house. And I'll open that back door, and I will call to her. And she pretends she doesn't hear me, and looks the other way. And so I start trying to coax her, and my voice goes up several octaves, right? Or I start jingling her chain or a box of doggy treats or something. I'm trying to convince her to do something she doesn't want to do. I'm almost pleading with her, coaxing with her to come. That's not God's call. He's not coaxing us. He's not even pleading with us or begging us. He is effectually calling us. It's like Jesus standing in the ship. Do you remember that incident? Out upon, on the sea. And the storm is raging overhead. The blackened sky and the, and the thunder and the lightning and the waves beating against the ship, against the boat. And the Lord Jesus simply cries out, be still. And immediately it was still. It is like the Lord Jesus when he stood with that groveling demoniac in front of him in the land of the Gadarenes. My name is Legion, for we are many. And that man had been mutilating himself out among the tombs, right? They tried binding him with chains and ropes, and he would just break these chains and these ropes. But now this man, possessed by a legion, is groveling on the ground before the Lord Jesus, and the Lord Jesus simply cries out, Be gone! And immediately, Legion is, he's gone. It's like the Lord Jesus standing beside the tomb of Lazarus. He's been dead several days. He's already beginning to decay, folks. And the stone is rolled away. And the Lord Jesus, as he stands there, he simply calls out. And what does he say? Come forth. And Lazarus came forth. What it's like it was in the beginning. And God simply said, let there be light. And there was light. This is the effectual call whereby the Lord Jesus Christ takes hold of his own. We become one with him through faith. He has before the foundation of the world set his love upon us. He has, in time, paid the price for our redemption. And now there arrives this time in our experience when he claims us and takes hold of us by the Spirit of God. Oh, my friends, this is an unbelievably comforting and reassuring truth. In 1 John 4, 17, John celebrates as he is, that is, as Christ is, so also are we in this world. 
Just pause. Think about it for a moment. 1 John 4, 17. As he is, as Christ is, so also are we in this world. What does John have in view in the greater context? He is celebrating the Father's love for the Son. He is celebrating the fact that Jesus Christ is God's only Son. He is celebrating, reveling in this delightful truth that the Son is the object of the Father's eternal love. And now he has, dare I say, the audacity to utter this statement as he is. So also are we in this world. Meaning what? That we are the object of that same love. Or as the Lord Jesus celebrates in his high priestly prayer in John 17. Father, you have loved them. All those whom you have given me and have come to me, you have loved them. And it is the same love with which the Father loves the Son that he has brought us by virtue of this calling, thereby making us his own, whereby we are now the objects of divine love. Hear this statement. Let it marinate in your hearts. God doesn't love his son any more than he loves us. Did you just hear what I said? And not one amen. God doesn't love his son any more than he loves us. Thank you. It is not because of anything in us. This is not Oprah. This is not chicken soup for the soul. It's got nothing to do with us. It is because he has taken us as his own, made us one by the Spirit with Christ, whereby we are now in an indissoluble union with Christ. Therefore, the love that the Father has for the Son is the same love he now has for all those who are in what? The Son. It's not about feeling better about ourselves. It's not about working up our self-esteem. It's about realizing who we are in Christ Jesus. It's about realizing that Christ has made us his own. You want a little more? A little more to celebrate? Remember that little phrase? It's used three or four times in Scripture. We are the apple of his eye. You know what the apple of the eye is? It's the pupil, right? And you think about the pupil, how important it is, how significant it is, how sensitive it is, and you think of the wonders of the human body, right? You've got this eyebrow, and these eyelashes and these cheekbones all designed to do what? To protect the pupil of the eye. You think about when you see anything coming towards you, what do you do? You just do it instinctively without even thinking. You blink, right? In order to protect the pupil of the eye. And so in scripture we read that we are the apple of God's eye. In other words, what? God has this same attitude towards us, very protective when it comes to us. Scripture actually speaks of the jealousy of God when it comes to us. Again, not because of anything meritorious in us, but because Christ has called us. He has called us having purchased us. He has purchased us having us being given to him by the Father in eternity. He has taken us as his own. 
Are you stuck in a Sisyphean struggle, my friend? A little overwhelmed with your sin this day? Oh, here's great motivation to press on. Great motivation to persevere. Remembering and celebrating who we are in Christ Jesus and the love that he has set upon us. And may it warm our hearts that we would love him as he has loved us. Warm our hearts, strengthening our faith, strengthening our hope, and causing us, yes, yet again, to put one foot in front of the other. Yes, yet again, confess that sin. Yet again, repent of that sin. Yet again, resolve and commit before the Lord this day no more. And press on. We're not already perfect. We have not already obtained it. And so we press on to make it our own. Here's the second word of counsel. Focus on the upward call of God in Christ. Brothers, verse 13, I do not consider that I have made it my own. But one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and straining forward to what lies ahead, I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Focus on the upward call of God in Christ. What happens when we die? Basically three views out there in our society today. Uh, there's the view of the naturalist. And so the naturalist argues that we live life within the closed arena of time and the physical material world. We're born, we die, that's it. A meaningless life and ultimately an absurd life. That's the view of the naturalist. There's the view of the dualist who believes we are spirit and soul, spirit and body, or soul and body, and that there is a part of us that is kind of wired, part of this bigger spiritual realm. This is quite popular today. I mean, you get it in forms like Hinduism and Buddhism and the New Age movement, but even if you, as you engage with your typical Canadian and they've imbibed sort of this materialist worldview, they'll still, they'll still allow for this spirituality, some sort of vague notion, ill-defined. Nobody ever defines it, but they'll say the silliest things about it, that, yeah, we kind of go somewhere or part of something or I'm a spiritual person. And then there's the view of the Christian. What does the Christian affirm? Well, we're body and soul. And when we die, what happens? They're separated. And our bodies are buried in the grave where they will decay. And they return to dust. And our souls ascend to glory. And we're with the Lord Jesus Christ. And on that day yet future, perhaps today, perhaps tomorrow, perhaps a thousand years from now, when the Lord Jesus Christ returns with the trumpet blast and the shout, right? And the voice of the archangel. What happens? He brings our souls with him. And he raises our bodies scattered, the atoms of our bodies scattered, who knows where, across this earth, raises our bodies from the dead. And he reunites our soul and our bodies. And we are glorified forevermore. Glorified in soul. A soul characterized, marked by divine qualities. And a body glorified without sin 
I mean, Paul points is there. We'll get there eventually right at the end of the chapter. But just look there for a moment. Verse 20, our citizenship is in heaven. And from it we attain a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body to be like his glorious body by the power that enables him even to subject all things to himself. And so what will happen when I die? Again, I will enter an intermediate state between my present state and my future state. And this intermediate state is a very unnatural state. It's a separation of the soul and the body. And the body buried, decaying, corruptible. Soul glorified with the Lord Jesus. An intermediate state. And on the day of the resurrection, that body of mine will be raised from the dead. And that old corruptible body will put on the incorruptible, a glorious body like that of the Lord Jesus Christ. This is what Paul encourages us to take hold of in this text. I press on to make it my own. Verse 14, I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. To Timothy, he says something very similar. 1 Timothy 6, 12, take hold of the eternal life to which you were called. Investments can evaporate. Houses can crumble. Jobs can disappear. Relationships can sour. And health can fail. But we're not living for any of those things. We are here to take hold of eternal life. We take hold of eternal life, how? By making it a present reality. We live according to what is coming. And in our struggles here, perhaps a struggle with grief, perhaps a struggle with failing health, perhaps a struggle with persecution or opposition, perhaps a struggle with life just not turning out as we thought it would, dashed dreams just there, scrambled mess on the floor. We persevere how and why because we've taken hold of eternal life. This doesn't mitigate the present suffering. This doesn't make us stoics with a stiff upper lip. No, we still experience the consequences of living in this fallen world. There is pain, there is anguish, there is grief, there is sorrow. But in the midst of it all, we are striving toward a prize, the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. And we seize it by faith each and every day. We make it a present reality, and that infuses all of life, even the deepest, darkest corner of our lives, with meaning and significance and purpose. Oh, the old Puritan Thomas Manton put it this way. Oh, here is misery. Oh, but there is happiness. Here is sin. There is holiness. Here is shame. There is glory. Here is labor. There is rest. Here is the cross. There is the crown. Here is the conflict. There is the full and absolute conquest. Here is the work. There is the reward. Here is the weakness. There is the perfection. Therefore, press on. Press on. Especially in the context, given our struggle 
with sin. It could be addiction for all I know. Someone here right now, addiction of one sort or another. It could be that temper of yours, you know. It could be envy of a sibling, a friend, just about anybody. Jealousy. It could be pride, self-love, just riddled with it. It could be pornography, just this habitual sin that just will not go away. Friend, you need to press on. And you press on how, oh, remember that Christ has made you his own and seek to love him as he loves you. And my friend, focus on the upward call of God in Christ. Live according to that day that is coming. Again, the 14th verse. It is a prize. Set your mind upon it. Set your heart upon it. Make it your goal, just like that athlete that agonizes because the award is there in front of him, in front of her. It is exactly the same. We have a prize. It is there. It is the coming resurrection. It's a new heavens and a new earth. It is eternal bliss. Oh, we are to agonize now as we anticipate that upward call. And here's the third word of counsel. Hold true to what you have attained. Verse 15, let those of us who are mature think this way. And if anything you think otherwise, God will reveal that also to you only. Let us hold true to what we have attained. What have we attained? Well, staying in the context, go back with me to verse 7. Paul declares, whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ. We have attained him. As Christians, again, we celebrate this glorious truth that we have been made one with him. And now, by virtue of the Holy Spirit's presence in us, in an unbreakable, unchangeable unending union with Christ by which we receive blessing upon blessing upon blessing. We're justified. Why? Because Christ was justified. 1 Timothy 3.16, he was justified, vindicated when he was raised from the dead. We're adopted as sons. Why? Christ was adopted as a son, declared to be the son of God by the resurrection from the dead. We're sanctified. Why? Because Christ sanctified himself, declares that in John 17. We're glorified. Why? Because Christ has been glorified. Understand, each and every gift, each and every benefit, each and every blessing that we receive, Christ himself has purchased and obtained and attained those blessings for us. And we receive them all now. Because we are one with him through the Holy Spirit. Oh, this is what we have attained. We must hold true to what we have attained. Life is difficult. 
I won't pretend otherwise. Even as I preach this morning, I struggle with it. A friend of mine in Texas yesterday admitted to hospital. Cancer. Okay, it happens in his 50s. You know, he's had two kids that went through leukemia. What are the odds of that? Both survived and are doing well. Enough, Lord. Now he's got cancer. And there he is in the hospital. Life is hard. We live in a fallen, broken world. If you don't see that, you're delusional. I make no apologies for saying it. We live in a broken world. Things are not as they were intended to be. They are not as they ought to be. And it ought to irk us and deeply trouble us. Oh, but in the midst of the chaos, Christ has taken hold of us. He has, make, he has made us his own, thereby setting the Father's love upon us. He has given us a great hope, tremendous inheritance, prospect in view that this life it is but the beginning, but the beginning of a story that will unfold for all eternity. Oh, and we have already obtained Christ, the greatest treasure of all, and all those blessings that he has purchased for us. There was a story that made the rounds. I was maybe 13, 14 years of age when I first heard it. And then it seemed over the next decade I would hear it every year. These kind of stories kind of make the rounds among preachers, right? Now I haven't heard it in about 30 years. I hope I remember it right. There's this gentleman, English gentleman in England, wealthy landowner. <coughs> His wife has passed away. He has an only son. And his son goes off to uh, the First World War, where he is killed. At the end of the war, a young man shows up at this older gentleman's front door. And he had befriended his son on the battlefield. And after his death, had actually painted a very simple portrait of him. And very unspectacular, this painting, worthless. And just wanted the old man to have it. He received it, thankfully placed it over the mantle in his sitting area, and there it hung for the next decade or two until the old man eventually passed away. No heir, no family. And so it was decided in his will that he would just simply auction everything off. Wealthy man, house full of all sorts of things, paintings, invaluable paintings. And when the art world heard that everything was going to be auctioned off, they came from all over Europe to see what they could buy for their own personal collections or for their art galleries and everything else. The auctioneer began the proceedings very simply, brought out the first painting. It was the painting of the sun which had hung over the mantle in his sitting area for a couple of decades. This is where we begin. Can I get an offer for this painting? Silence, dead silence. No one was there to buy that painting. They were there for the Picassos and the Van Goghs and everything else. An embarrassed silence until finally some other old man in the back of the room who had been the gardener and worked on the grounds for, gener for, for ages simply said, I've, I've got three pounds in my pocket. It's all I've got. Is that enough? It's yours. It's yours. Immediately falling, the gavel hit the podium in front. The auction is over. Why? Because in the stipulation of the will, whoever buys the painting of the sun gets everything. <laughs> Friends, you have the sun. Do you know what that means? 
Do we have any idea what that means? We get everything. Not necessarily right now. This is the time of wayfaring and warfaring. This is the time of battle. This is the time to engage in the conflict. But someday we will get it all. All things are yours, says Paul in 1 Corinthians 3. All things are yours. All are yours. And you are Christ's. And Christ is God's. And so, press on. Ray Comfort tells an interesting story. He tells the story, I heard this some years ago, of, uh, of a couple of men. They're on a commercial flight. And um, just by way of illustration, there they're sitting, economy class. And a stewardess comes walking down the aisle with a parachute and hands it to the first man. Put this on. It'll make your life more enjoyable. The flight. You know, more pleasurable. So he dutifully does what he is told and puts it on. Can you imagine a parachute sitting in economy? His face is plastered up against the chair in front of him. He can't let down his little tray when the meal comes around, can't read a book, can't do anything. He looks around, a little embarrassed. No one else is wearing a parachute. After a while, he just thinks to himself, this is absolutely ridiculous, pointless. So he rips that thing off, right? The second man, the stewardess makes her way down the aisle, hands him a parachute, puts this on, please put this on. She doesn't say to him, look, it'll make your flight more enjoyable. She says the following, this plane's about to crash. He puts it on. And not for anything in the world will he take it off. Why? Two very different views of reality. Very, two very different views of what lay ahead. I fear sometimes as Christians we claim to have put on Christ, but it's for the wrong reasons. Maybe we think it'll make life easier or make life better or he'll give us what we want or somehow, I don't know, uh, your best life now, something like this. No, 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 my friends. Here we are right now, 2020, London, Ontario, living this life. There's a whole new, whole new world coming. This world is going to crash, this present world. Present world reserved for judgment, reserved for fire. It too will be renewed in the resurrection, in the great regeneration. But this is a very temporary, temporary passing life. Oh, take hold of eternal life. Understand that Christ has made you his own. Focus on the upward call of God in Christ and hold true to what you have attained. And whatever might be going on in your life today, Tomorrow, next week, the Word of God, the Spirit of God, His admonition to you and to me is simply this. Press on. Our Heavenly Father, we make this our great ambition this day. Oh, how life does get us down at times. How disappointment with ourselves and our own struggle with sin discourages us. How the ravages of living in a fallen world at times depress us and disappoint us. We do thank you for all that you've given us in the Lord Jesus, and we thank you for this great hope that you've imparted to us in him. We pray that each and every day we might look away from ourselves, fix our eyes on Christ, who he is and what he has done for us, 
And may this enable us and strengthen us and encourage us to fight the good fight of faith. We are so weak in ourselves. And so we look to you as our loving Heavenly Father to hear our cries for help, our pleas for mercy, to fill us with your Spirit by means of your Word that we might indeed press on for the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. This we pray in his matchless name. Amen.